And what people have to understand that the Chinese Communist Party is arguably the biggest killing machine in human history. They have been killing massive numbers of their own citizens since the Chinese Civil War. The death toll by that alone is close to 100 million people. And then, of course, we add to that the victims, the tiny victims of the uh, one-child policy. So these are not nice people who run China. The Chinese people deserve better. And I've been trying to expose human rights abuses in China, expose the terrible suffering of women and families in the one-child policy, the suffering of minorities, the suffering of Catholics in China, and now, of course, the suffering of the entire world because of the China coronavirus that the Chinese Communist Party deliberately unleashed on the rest of us. This is WSFI Spotlight, a conversation with Catholics living in the light. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of WSFI Spotlight. I'm your host, Angela Tomlinson, and with us today is a very special guest, Dr. Stephen Moser. He's been on the news quite a bit, uh, Dr. Moser. We've been seeing you on Fox News, and I guess you were on this morning. For those of you who aren't familiar with Dr. Moser, he's the president of the Population Research Institute and is a leading authority on China. He is the author of numerous books, including Journey to the Forbidden China, A Mother's Ordeal, One Woman's Fight Against China's One-Child Policy, Population Control, Real Costs, Loserary Benefits, Broken Earth, The Rural Chinese, China Misperceived, and Americans' Illusions in Chinese Reality. So welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on the show, Angela. This is a really important topic. I'm glad we're talking about it today. Yes, and one of your biggest fans are here in the studio. As a matter of fact, that's how you came to my attention. We have Bonnie Quirk, who is the founder and president of Lake County Right to Life, and also Mark Curran, who has been a longtime supporter of WSFI Catholic Radio. Many of our listeners know him as the sheriff of Lake County for many, many years, staunch pro-lifer, devout Catholic, daily communicant. He made the news. Mark, you made the news today with uh, Michael Voris for the first time, huh? Indeed. And I'm somebody that recognizes, although he's not always right, there is a huge importance for the voice of Michael Voris. And the reason why, Mark, you were in the news was you had mentioned that you wanted to go to confession and that you were hoping that there was a way that the church could find a safe way to receive the sacraments. And then that just lit off a a firestorm that we're still trying to see where, where it all leads. Mark, you're running against Dick Durbin as the pro-life candidate. That's right. I'm the Republican nominee for the United States Senate, and I'm not somebody that's running from Donald Trump. I'm somebody that's very proud to be running with Donald Trump. Yeah, well, he's, he's standing tall on this issue of China. So, Stephen, just before we get started on the Chinese, I read your story a little bit about how you came to be Catholic in the early days when you were at Stanford. Would you mind sharing that with our audience? Well, I was, I was the first American and social scientist allowed into China. It was way back in 1979, 1980. I was picked by the National Security Council, the State Department, to go to China. I was then at Stanford. I was teaching at the University of California at Berkeley. And I arrived in China, a sort of ignorant, naive about the uh, misdeeds of the Chinese Communist Party. And it took me uh, probably the better part of a year to learn from the Chinese people themselves what a disaster the Chinese Communist Party's version of socialist paradise had been for them. You know, visiting a killing field where hundreds of people were executed by the Communist Party over the years was certainly a wake-up call. But what changed my life and what drove me 
to become pro-life and ultimately to become a believing Catholic is that I was in the operating room when they were forcibly aborting women in the seventh, eighth, and ninth month of pregnancy. And they were aborting women in the seventh, eighth, and ninth month of pregnancy because they were violating the one-child policy, which was instituted when I was in China. And I'll tell you what, standing six, seven feet away from the operating table where a woman carrying a nearly full-term baby uh, was being opened up like a tin can by cesarean section. And it's one that immediately drove me to become pro-life and over time to, to join the Catholic Church. It was as if the pit of hell had opened up before me. I had always thought I'd been taught at Stanford that there were no moral absolutes. Everything was relative. There was no absolute good and evil. And here I was confronted with an absolute evil, the killing of a full-term, healthy infant almost at birth who had done nothing to deserve the death sentence. So that's my story in a nutshell. It's uh, always very interesting when we begin to talk about the sanctity of human life, whether it's, it's here in the United States. It certainly doesn't change with geography, does it? <laughs> no, I mean, this is... Human life, you know, is the first uh, the first freedom. Without life, uh, none, no other freedom matters. The country that's most violated, I think, the sanctity of life throughout the last 40 years is the so-called People's Republic of China, which brags about having eliminated 400 million people from its population. And they did that by means of forced abortion under the terms of the one-child policy, where for three and a half decades, women were only allowed one child for the most part, and they were only allowed that one child when the state allowed them, gave them permission to have that child. But, you know, it's still the case in China today that single moms are not allowed to give birth. So even though the one-child policy has been ended for married women, for couples, the one-child policy continues to be imposed on single mothers that's why in China we have been supporting a number of homes for single moms fleeing forced abortion. They're still needed in China, despite the fact the Chinese government is now desperate to raise the birth rate after having been desperately seeking to lower the birth rate for the last 35 years. They now find themselves with a slowing economy, with a shrinking workforce, with a dying population, aging and dying population, and they're desperate to reverse the trend that they themselves started in 1980 when I was in China. Stephen, just for the listeners out there, could you just give us a quick run-through of your credentials? And th there's a reason why every national news outlet wants you right now. And then once you get done doing that, could you begin to tell us what your thoughts are on the coronavirus and what's going on in, in the world right now and how it's being handled, where it came from, and where do we go? Well, I was, I was an officer with the 7th Fleet in the U.S. Navy during the tail end of the, the Vietnam War. I was stationed in Japan for the most part, learned to read and speak some Japanese, but was drawn to China. Uh, my original academic background was in biology. I, am a, I have a master's degree in, in the biological sciences, but I was drawn to China after spending years in Japan and went to the Chinese University of Hong Kong to study uh, the Chinese language, learned Mandarin, Cantonese, later did research on Taiwan, so I speak Taiwanese, and went to Stanford. I was getting a PhD when China opened up. We normalized diplomatic relations with China on January 15th of 1979. I was in China. Two months later, stayed there for a year. Uh, because I could read, write, and speak Chinese, I was able to make friends 
uh, with many, many Chinese and find out the reality of life in China. And what people have to understand that the Chinese Communist Party is arguably the biggest killing machine in human history. They have been killing massive numbers of their own citizens since the Chinese Civil War. The death toll by that alone is close to 100 million people. And then, of course, we add to that the victims, the tiny victims of the uh, one-child policy. So these are not nice people who run China. The Chinese people deserve better. And I've been trying to expose human rights abuses in China, expose the terrible suffering of women and families in the one-child policy, the suffering of minorities, the suffering of Catholics in China, and now, of course, the suffering of the entire world because of the China coronavirus that the Chinese Communist Party deliberately unleashed on the rest of us. So, yeah, it's a busy time. It's a busy time for me because we now have a historic opportunity to really let the world know and let America know the the real danger of, of a rising China. Where do you think we're going to go from here? We're locked down. Uh, we, I think the American population is finally realizing that it didn't come from a wet market, and no. which is a huge step. Where do you think we're going to go from here? And how do you think that's going to play into a realization of the of the dangers of communism and socialism, same thing, uh, and the sanctity of human life? Well, that's, you know, we, we have to go back to uh, November in China when the first cases of the uh, China virus began in the city of Wuhan. And, yeah, it did not begin, Bonnie, at a wet market. That's the Chinese Communist Party's cover story. We know from researchers on the ground, Chinese researchers on the ground, who went to the Wuhan wet market, that there were no bats sold in the Wuhan wet market. In fact, there were no bats within 600 miles of the city, central Chinese city of Wuhan. How did they get from their caves in neighboring provinces of places like Yunnan, all the way 600 miles, 1,000 miles to the city of Wuhan. Well, they were captured by a bat hunter by the name of Mr. Tian, who worked for a bio lab in the city of Wuhan. His job for the last 10 years has been to go to caves far away and bring back live bats so that they can be done, researched on in two bio labs in the city of Wuhan, the Center for Disease Control Lab and the Institute of Virology. And we're not talking about one or two bats. We're talking about thousands and thousands of bats, thousands of samples of bat urine and feces. And what they were trying to get from the bats were viruses, especially coronaviruses. People need to understand that over the last 10 years, China has been in a frenzy of collecting dangerous pathogens, dangerous viruses, dangerous coronaviruses in one lab, in two labs in the entire country. Those two labs were in the city of Wuhan. So they had doubled over the last few years. They have doubled the number of known viruses. They collected 2,000 viruses, many dangerous pathogens. And the labs are in the city center of a city of probably 15 million people doing this research. So they... Virus didn't come from a wet market. It came from a leak from one of these two labs. One of the lab workers got infected. We think it was a Miss Huang. Uh, Huang Yanqing was her name. She was a graduate student. 
she's no longer among the living and she's disappeared. And, and when she got infected, she began infecting others. But the virus did not originate the wet market. A bat did not fly 600 miles and land in someone's soup. That's ridiculous. The bat was brought to these labs. They were being uh, checked for dangerous coronaviruses. And one of those dangerous coronaviruses managed to escape from the lab. And then the whole thing was hidden, covered up by the Chinese Communist Party for months. Uh, a couple of key dates. On January 1st, the Chinese Communist Party locked down its military bases in and around the city of Wuhan. It didn't tell the people that there was a dangerous epidemic brewing of this new coronavirus, but it locked down the military bases to prevent the military from becoming infected. We have documents from January 2nd, January 3rd from different military bases that have leaked out that talk about closing down the school and not allowing anyone in the school who was not supposed to be studying there or resident there at the base. And it wasn't until January 23rd, 23 days later, that the people of Wuhan were told that there was a dangerous virus about and the city of Wuhan was locked down. Flights from Wuhan to other parts of China were canceled on January 23rd, but some flights were still allowed to leave Wuhan for other countries. Think about that. Flights from the city of Wuhan to other Chinese cities were canceled because they didn't want the virus to spread anymore in China. But flights continued to fly out of Wuhan to places like Taipei and Hong Kong and Tokyo and other places for several days after that. Earlier on, you said that they intentionally spread the virus, if I understood it correctly. Is that why you're saying they intentionally spread it? So it was le- it was a mistake in the beginning, but they intentionally spread it because they shipped people that they knew were infected throughout the world to select places? They knew they had a problem uh, at the end of December because the Ministry of Health had already sent a group of researchers down to find out what was going on. They knew they had a problem because poor Dr. Lee, Dr. Lee, Dr. Lee Wenyang, Dr. Lee, who died from the China virus, was a whistleblower. And we all know his name because he was the one who warned medical workers in Wuhan there was a new and dangerous uh, viral pneumonia. And for that, he was locked up for a couple of days, forced to write a confession and promised never to say anything again. They knew they had a problem. They made labs destroy the samples of the China virus, the coronavirus. They made researchers take down publications that mentioned the novel coronavirus. So this was a cover-up. It began in late December. And when you have a cover-up, of course, what do you have? You have a crime. Otherwise, what are you covering up? So they were covering up their crime. They kept it. They allowed it to spread throughout the population of Wuhan. And from there, it spread throughout the world. Uh, Remember, back in January, that was the Chinese New Year. Biggest human migration on the planet takes place during the Chinese New Year. Probably 200 million people in China leave their jobs in factories in the big cities and in the coastal provinces, and they go back to their homes in the hinterland, their villages, their towns, the smaller cities. Five million people left Wuhan in the days leading up to January 23rd. So they scattered all over China. They scattered all over the world. They went to places like Iran, Germany, Italy, you, you know, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago. You, you, you talk about New York. You talk about a hot spot, 
and you know that it began because there were there were people from Wuhan who were carrying the virus, didn't know they had it, but were allowed, with the complicity of the Chinese Communist Party, to carry it overseas. I think the pandemic is a creation, is a made-in-China product. It's probably the most costly made-in-China product that we will ever be forced to buy. Uh, people seem to think that made-in-China products are cheap, but when you factor in the cost of a trillion dollars lost to the economy because of the China virus, uh, made-in-China products don't seem so cheap anymore, do they? No. I still want to get back to that, just for clarity. So I understand that you're saying that they knew about it and they had people travel everywhere but their own country. Why do you think they did that? Why do I think they did that? They, they, You know, here we're talking about motivations, yes, so we're yes. speculating somewhat, but speculating. I'm speculating on the basis of 40 years of study of the methods, the tactics, the procedures, the thinking of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think the Chinese Communist Party knew early on that it had a problem on its hands and didn't take action because it instinctively tried to the leaders of the party, which by which I mean the president for life, dictator, uh, general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, head of the military commission, whatever you want to call him, uh, Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping wanted to cover it up because it made him look bad. And when it got too big to cover up, I think they had a meeting and they decided that, uh, well, if China's economy was going down because of the epidemic, then we might as well take the rest of the world with it. Wow. China continues today. Listen, China continues today to lie about the number of China virus cases it has in China. Uh, we know that the numbers out of Wuhan are, are absurd. Uh, they say that 2,535 people died. 2,535 people died. They've handed out thousands of funeral urns containing the ashes of the victims from seven crematoria for 14 days. If you crunch the numbers, that's about 50,000 uh, funeral urns that were handed out to grieving relatives. So I think the actual number in the city of Wuhan alone is probably 20 times what the Chinese Communist Party is admitting. They're still lying about it. They're still covering it up today. And because of those lies, I don't know if people understand what uh, Dr. Deborah Biggs was saying, you know, the other day in the uh, coronavirus task force press conference, uh, she was saying because of the numbers coming out of China, they thought it was uh, a, 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 an epidemic like SARS. Yes. Uh, which had very low, uh, which was not very infectious, but very deadly. It turns out that it's not very deadly, but it's very, very infectious. China lied and, and people died as yeah. a result. And they're still lying today. Uh, so I think everybody is a victim of the of the Chinese Communist Party. I think that uh, for decades, the Chinese people have been victims of the Chinese Communist Party. But now everyone around the world who's got sick from the virus, uh, who's had a relative die from the virus, everybody who's lost a job from the virus, everybody who's had to close a business or maybe had to go bankrupt because of the virus, we're all victims of the Chinese Communist Party. And there has to be there has to be a reckoning. So my first question is the timetables. California was reporting that they thought maybe they had the SARS, I mean, not the SARS, the uh, coronavirus, the end of 2019, and that was what was uh, being reported as, as a bad flu season. Would that have been wrong then, that, that, that this did not actually hit anywhere until 2020? No, I, I think the earliest cases of, of a new and undiagnosed pneumonia were probably being, doctors were becoming aware of it back in China back in October. Um, and, and, but of course, if you give somebody 
if someone comes in with flu symptoms and it's the flu season, you don't always test them to see exactly what strain of the flu you have. You just tell them, you go home, rest, drink plenty of fluids, um, you know, stay, stay hydrated, you know, the standard advice. And uh, if it develops in pneumonia, you get hospitalized, and maybe then they begin to do tests and try to find out what you have. There were cases re- reported in China, in Wuhan, for example. I read one uh, case of one uh, English teacher there from England who was in Wuhan teaching English. He became sick in late October and with the what turned out to be the, uh, the China virus. So I think it was spreading throughout the population for several months in China before the authorities became aware of it. And once they became aware of it, of course, they then closed down debate, discussion, closed down labs, pulled down research papers, told researchers to stop doing research and tried to cover it up. So this thing has been percolating in the in the Chinese population for some time. And look, there are 15,000, I, I don't know exactly how many, 15,000, 20,000 uh, people flying uh, from China every day to other parts of the world. And some of those people would have been asymptomatic. Or, or very low symptoms of the China virus and carried it to other parts of the world probably, you know, in December. And so, yeah, the earliest cases on the West Coast and in New York were probably in December. They simply weren't diagnosed. They were simply treated as the flu. But that doesn't relieve China of the responsibility because once they knew about it in late December, uh, they began to cover it up as assiduously as they, as they could. We have now a new directive published on April 14th by the Chinese central government saying that no researcher is allowed to publish their research on COVID-19 on the China coronavirus without the permission of the central authorities. And I'll tell you what, any research that's done on the China virus uh, by laboratories in Wuhan or Shanghai or wherever uh, will be sent to, to the central government, to the uh, Ministry of Health to die because they're simply not publishing what they know about the virus. They're, they they had this virus in the lab, I believe. My request, and I believe this should be a request from President Trump to President Xi, you must release the complete research records of the two labs in Wuhan, the Center for Disease Control and the Institute of Virology, because the world needs to see if this China virus was something you were doing research on in one of your labs. So release the research records. They can clear their they can clear their name overnight if they were to release the records. Uh, but of course, I, I'm afraid they're never going to release the records. They're probably busy destroying them as we speak. Uh, Stephen uh, Bounty here. Has this virus, uh, to your knowledge, spread to Shanghai and Beijing in China, or do we know if it's spread out of the Wuhan province into... Yeah, yeah. That's a good question, Bonnie. China's been hiding cases uh, all over China. And a friend of mine at the American Enterprise Institute just published two days ago a report saying that he believes there are at least... 2.9 2.9 million uh, people throughout China who are infected with the with the uh, China virus. Um, I, I think the number is probably higher. They are still putting um, counties in China and cities in China on lockdown because there are still hotspots. We still get reports of, um, for example, in Beijing, there are no medical treatment is being offered in the hospital except treatment for uh, the, the people suffering from the uh, from the China coronavirus. So woe to those who have uh, <laughs> about to have a baby because they've been shutting down the 
ICUs are closed to everybody but victims of the, the China coronavirus. The nurseries are closed to everybody, the birthing centers. Uh, so the hospitals are still going full steam in places like Shanghai and Chongqing and Guangzhou and Beijing in treating the China coronavirus. So that tells you that they're still dealing with a pretty significant number of cases, even though they've imposed probably the most severe quarantine that has ever been known in human history. Their quarantine, of course, is more like house arrest. Right. What's your feel, uh, Stephen? In this country, you know, abortion clinics have been declared essential services for most states. And uh, I, I think a lot of young ladies who are pregnant are worried uh, that this virus might affect their unborn baby. And it certainly is something I'm sure Planned Parenthood has thought about. And the increase in the abortion rate of course, we don't know chemical, but we do know surgical, uh, has been exponential here. Um, what's your take on transmission? Yeah, I, Bonnie, I, I'm very saddened by the fact that, that some people uh, in the political arena think it's more important to keep uh, abortion clinics open uh, than to keep other vital services open and running. But And Planned Parenthood, which is always interested in making money in good times and bad, is happy to uh, play on the fears of young women that their, their babies somehow may be, may be infected. Uh, but we know, I mean, now we know from our own research, not from China's numbers, which are false, we know from our own research that, uh, that, the, that the China coronavirus is not uh, very dangerous to the very young, including, including newborns. Uh, what I do think is happening, though, is uh, a lot of young couples... Uh, have lost their jobs and they're facing financial hard times. And we have always seen in depressions, we have seen the birth rate fall because people believe that they're just not financially able uh, to bring a child into the world uh, in these, in these, you know, in these hard times and these desperate circumstances. Yeah, I hope that we can get through this very quickly. I think we will. I think we're very blessed to have a businessman in the White House and not a politician. Uh, and certainly we would be far worse off if we had a leftist politician in the White House because they would be, uh, well, they basically be channeling Nancy Pelosi and trying to use this crisis as an opportunity to impose socialism on the entire country. But we have a businessman in, in uh, the White House who understands, like Calvin Coolidge, that the business of America is business and he's interested in getting us back to work as quickly as possible. And I think with social distancing, uh, I think with, with procedures in place to protect the vulnerable and the elderly, and I count myself probably in that population, that, uh, that the rest, everybody else can get back to work and, and we'll get through this, uh, sooner, I think, than, than, than people think. Can I ask you a couple questions, Doctor? And that is one, if you were to advise President Trump going forward with regards to China, what would you tell him? And it may be something that he already knows and he's already going to do, but what would you tell him? And secondly, what are your thoughts on the World Health Organization and what they bring to the table and whether or not that was good to yeah. withhold funds? Yeah, let me, let me take the second question first because I can, I can dispense with that one quickly. <laughs> the World Health Organization should be renamed the China Health Organization wow. because Dr. Tedros, who is not a medical doctor, by the way, is uh, is a member of the ruling junta in Ethiopia, a communist, and was backed by the World Health uh, 
for his job at the World Health Organization by China. So he might as well be a, as far as I'm concerned, a China operative placed at the head of this international organization. There are 15 UN agencies. Four of them are now headed by people of, of, from China who are Chinese uh, citizens of the People's Republic of China. And uh, there are senior people in senior positions at all of the other agencies as well. And they all do the bidding of the Chinese Communist Party. So I think that, that President Trump is rightly outraged at the way that Dr. Tedros went to China, uh, I believe it was January 29th, and came out and repeated Chinese propaganda from dictator Xi Jinping, who said to him, everything's under control, and I'm completely in charge. And Dr. Tedros came out and said, everything in China is under control. Don't worry, the Communist Party has everything well in hand. Well, they didn't. So uh, the World Health Organization is kind of a co-conspirator in, in inflicting this pandemic around the world, completely belying its mission. Its mission is to save people, save lives. And its behavior in this circumstance has cost lives. So I'm not a big fan of uh, sending more money to the World Health Organization. That money should be redirected uh, towards private charities, which operate with a lot lower overhead and have more boots on the ground than the World Health Organization, that don't fly first class everywhere around the world to meetings, that don't that don't stay in five-star hotels. They're out working on the ground with the people saving lives. Let's spend the money where it'll do the most good. So that's the World Health Organization. Uh, what, would, what would I tell President Trump? Well, President Trump has had China's number for a long time. In 1999, he published a book, Not the Art of Making a Deal, another book, in which he talked about how China was cheating on trade and how China was devaluing its currency to take advantage of American naivete on that front, how China was stealing American intellectual property and so on and so forth. And in the three years before the pandemic that he's been in office, that he has helped begin the process by imposing tariffs on Chinese goods of convincing factories to relocate from China to democratic countries, of convincing supply chains to relocate from China. So we're a lot better off now than we would have been in 2016, because we were a lot more closely connected to the Chinese economy and the U.S. economy then than we are now. China's long dreamed of being the dominant power on the planet. Uh, my latest book is called Bully of Asia. And the subtitle is Why China's Dream is, is a New Threat to the World. And uh, boy, is that, <laughs> is that not the case. Uh, China's long dreamed of being the dominant power on the planet. In, in fact, it seemed well on the way to succeeding. Until recently, a third of all the world's manufactured goods were stamped made in China. What a difference a pandemic makes. I think the China dream of dictator Xi Jinping is now on life support. You know, it's in grave danger of succumbing to the same China virus that that it has unleashed on the world. I mean, I, I say we turn off the ventilator. I think now is precisely the time that we need a hard decoupling from China. And, you know, it's not just the United States. What do you think Boris Johnson, the prime minister of Great Britain, thinks about China right now after he spent a week in the hospital, three days in the ICU? suffering from the China virus. That nearly killed him last month. Uh, he, uh, he's already told uh, Huawei that it has no part in, in the 5G networks in the UK. He's also said publicly there'll be other consequences for China's failure to share data on the deadly virus. Spain, Turkey, the Netherlands, Australia, the Czech Republic, they've all received defective personal protective gear from China. They've all received test kits from China that produce a lot of false negatives. People come in, get tested, they're told they don't have the virus, they go out and spread it around, 
because they, in fact, do have the virus. The Chinese test kit was defective. So faulty test kits kill people. Um, So there's a lot of anger, uh, I think, around the world at China's deceit and deception in terms of the pandemic. And I think we ought to to ride that anger in forming a coalition uh, with not just Australia and Canada and and the UK and New Zealand, but with many countries around the world, Japan. Japan is already paying Japanese companies to leave China. They put aside billions of dollars in yen to help pay for the relocation costs of Japanese companies. They don't have to come back to Japan. They can go to the Philippines, they can go to Vietnam, they can go to India, they can come to the United States, but they have to leave China. What do you think that says about Japan doesn't have very many warm, fuzzy feelings towards the Chinese Communist Party at this moment, and I don't say I don't think that many people do. Dr. Marsh, I just want to jump in. I, I did read Bully of Asia, and you talk about disease of the skin versus disease of the heart. So which one does China have? Well, back in, back in 2000, I was working with the FBI because they had set up uh, local investigative task forces in their FBI offices all the way across the country to look into Chinese espionage. And they were beginning to crack down on Chinese espionage. So I was going to, from one office to another speaking about the danger from China. And then 9-11 happened. Uh, I was actually in New York to speak at the New York office a couple of weeks before 9-11 happened. 9-11 happened. All of our resources were taken, investigative resources were taken off the China espionage cases and put on terrorism for the next 15 years. Now, I think we should be paying attention to terrorism, and we should have a, a lot of resources devoted to that. But we took our eye off the China ball for a long, long time. In the meantime, China's espionage grew by leaps and bounds. We're finally now beginning to pay attention to the real threat, which is a threat from China. I call terrorism a disease of the skin. You know, it can it can hurt you. It's painful, but it won't kill you. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party running China is the disease of the heart. They want to kill us. And I say that deliberately because they declared that Deng Xiaoping in 1991 declared a Cold War on the United States. This is documented. The Soviet Union had collapsed. Deng Xiaoping called together the senior leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, and he said this. He said, the old Cold War is over. The United States has won. The Soviet Union has been defeated. The new Cold War has now begun, and we will win this one. And that sentiment was just repeated last year uh, by Xi Jinping. So make no mistake. Uh, they've been at war with us across all domains, except the kinetic. We're not firing bullets at each other. But they've been at war with us in manufacturing. They've been at war with us in their territorial claims, in terms of espionage, in terms of the theft of intellectual property, across all domains except the kinetic. And we're finally, I think, in a position where we wake up to that. But how uh, about our laboratories, the, the, Dr. Moja? How about what's going on, like, at Harvard? Their presence in all our laboratories right now, because, you know, the concern is even if we did wake up, as you were talking about, and we all hunker down and we defeat this virus, it seems like it's such an eat, like the fact that they even have factories that are developing viruses, what's that all about? And then what are they doing in our colleges and in our laboratories? And how dangerous is that? I mean, they don't need a big army or a big economy to do this again. And how would we ever stop it? 
Well, you know, it, the Chinese, the Chinese uh, technological advances, like the Soviet advances, are dependent upon the theft of Western technology, specifically the theft of American technology, because uh, because of the culture of corruption in China. Anything you develop in China is quickly stolen. There's no rule of law. There's rule by law. Uh, the Communist Party uses laws to control the people. And so you steal things from the United States. You then monetize them in China with the help of the Chinese Communist Party. It's been a successful, uh, very successful economic development program for China over the years. It's cost us $600 billion a year in estimated uh, value of the theft of intellectual property. So that that has to stop. If we stop that, uh, that brings, I think, a lot of the technological advances in China to a, to a screeching halt. Well, I'm thinking of the vials that the Harvard professor was caught at Logan yes. Airport with with the FBI. I'm thinking more less along the technology because, as you said, the cost of this pandemic is so much more than if you add up all the costs of all the technologies they've stolen, the, the, the cost of bringing us to our knees, which is exactly yeah. what they'd like us to do. How do you ever... Pre- prevent something like that from happening again? And why are they on the payroll? Why did he receive $50,000 from, from China at Harvard? Yeah. So, so we have one of Harvard's 25 university professors, someone who is, who is celebrated in the chemistry world, who's the head of Harvard's Department of Chemistry, Dr. Charles Lieber, who in 2012 signed a contract with the University of Wuhan, that's again, that's Wuhan, that's the city, the center of the pandemic, in which he agreed for a sum of $50,000 a month to open up a lab for which he was given, you know, a million and a half dollars in expenses and given another $150,000 in, uh, in relocation expenses and just walking around money. His job was to take the technology that he had developed in his labs at Harvard, which we had paid for through the National Institute of Health to the tune of $15 million, and take that technology to China and open an identical lab there to do the identical research and help China. You know, it's it's a great way. We call it latecomer's advantage, right? You let somebody else develop the technology, and then you bribe, beg, or steal the technology, and you don't have to pay the, uh, the upfront investment cost. So... They recruited Professor Lieber into what they call the Thousand Talents Program. This was an effort that targets leading researchers in American universities, not just Chinese researchers or Chinese Americans, but all researchers who have technology that China wants to get its hands on. They come to them and they say, we want you to join our Thousand Talents Program. We want you to bring your technology to China and we will give you handsome sum of money in order to do that. So Dr. Lieber, basically, he has been charged by the FBI with filing false statements with the grant maker, National Institutes of Health, and I believe he will stand trial for that at some point in the future. And um, I, I think the Thousand Talents Program run by the Chinese Communist Party should be called the Thousand Traders Program because they're basically asking Americans to betray their country, to betray the American taxpayer, and turn over their cutting-edge technology to China, especially where it deals with artificial intelligence or machine learning or big data or uh, medical devices, the, the, the list of uh, the seven high-tech areas that China wants to dominate by 2025. But Charles Lieber, one more thing about Professor Lieber. He was implanting microchips in the brains of laboratory animals. He had developed a way to 
inject tiny microchips into the brains of, of cats and, and mice and, and other rodents that could influence their activity. Now, do you think that the ability to implant microchips that could interact on a, the level of neurons with the brain of, of an animal would be of interest to the Chinese Communist Party, which invented, <laughs> which invented brainwashing in yeah. the 1930s. The term brainwashing comes from the Chinese Communist Party. It's called Xinao in Chinese, wash brain. And it was a way of locking up people and subjecting them to morning to night propaganda until they believed, like Winston in 1984, they believed whatever the party was telling them. Uh, the party that invented brainwashing would love to have a way of directly interfering with the thoughts of the people it rules. Dr. Mosher, I want to ask uh, two questions uh, quickly, and one is Russia and where they factor into all of this. You know, I've always thought the, har the threat of Russia is overblown, but maybe not if they're cahoots with China at all. And then secondly, the shelter-in-place business, was this the right thing, or should we have just uh, isolated only the sick and the vulnerable as opposed to... Uh, you know, the whole country. Yeah, Russia Russia is a gas station. Um, you know, it, it has petroleum reserves. It's one of the big uh, producers of petroleum products. But I think, I think I mean, President Trump deserves kudos for uh, the art of the petroleum deal, I think he called it. He's now gotten Saudi Arabia and, and Russia to stop its petroleum war and cut back on, on oil production, uh, which will keep American producers in business. Uh, I think that was a that was a brilliant move and will help save that sector of the economy, the U.S. economy, from further damage. Russia is the threat of the past. China is the threat of the present and the future. Russia is annoying. It engages in provocative acts, but it's not, I don't think, a threat to, it's certainly not a threat to the current U.S.-led world order. China is a threat to the current U.S.-led world order, which we see now very clearly, I think more clearly than ever before. China wants to replace the U.S. as the dominant power on the planet. And if that happens, the world will be a poor, darker, less free, certainly less democratic place than it is now. That's not a world that I want to live in. Russia is, is an annoyance. China is, again, a disease of the heart. I'm not going to say Russia is a disease of the skin. It's something more than that. Russia has become... In the face of this pandemic, we see now Russia for what it is. It's a distraction. It's an annoyance. We need to be focused on on the real strategic threat. Even the fact that China makes most of our medications and has threatened to cut off the supply of medications to Americans who depend on those medications uh, to avoid strokes and heart attacks and high blood pressure and, and high cholesterol and all the rest. I mean, that's an amazing thing for any government to threaten to do. And yet, China has threatened exactly that. Do we run the risk also of, of uh, poisoning our medications and what have you? I mean, th this dependence on China for anything is really uh, Well, concerning. it is, and, it, and the poisoning doesn't even have to be deliberate because we know that, that the, the Chinese version of the Food and Drug Administration officials can be bought off. And so the inspections of the plants that are making penicillin and other common generic drugs are cursory at best. And so there can be there ha can be additives. People will remember that that pets died uh, because they added a fake protein powder uh, that was deadly. Uh, babies died in China because they added a fake protein powder to baby formula. So there are a lot of cutting corners in China. Standards are are violated. And then to come back to the labs, that's why we have these repeated leaks 
from of deadly pathogens from Chinese biolabs. The SARS epidemic back in 2003, they, once they had they had corralled it, they took the SARS virus and they were investigating it in a lab in Beijing. And guess what? In 2004, the following year, it leaked out of the lab twice and infected and killed a lot of people. Why? Because of poor laboratory safety processes. And we now know that the State Department in 2018 actually sent a, uh, a cable back to Washington saying that, that maybe we shouldn't be, uh, we should be wary of the Wuhan Institute of Virology because of its poor lab safety practices. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. Stephen, do you think China has developed a vaccine? And do you think that a vaccine is the answer to this virus, this deadly virus? Here's what I think about the virus itself. We'll call it the Chinese coronavirus. It is mostly uh, comes from a horseshoe bat. I think 96% plus of the, the genes in the virus come from the horseshoe bat which, of course, didn't fly from its cave 600 miles to land in someone's soup, but was being investigated from 2013 on in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And only this year did the lead researcher, a woman named Shur, Shur Zhangli, but her surname is Shur, in January, she finally published information on this horseshoe bat coronavirus that she had been studying for seven years. It was previously unknown. What had she been doing in the lab for seven years that she wasn't telling the world about until January? Anyway, I don't want to get too too technical, but there may have been insertions in the uh, the genome of this horseshoe bat coronavirus that makes it more deadly. And she may have been doing research in the lab just to make dangerous pathogens to see how she they could be controlled. I'm not saying it was a, a bioweapon. But, in fact, it's turned out to kill a lot of people and, and make a lot of people sick. So I'm not, you know, sure what uh, what, what Miss Sure was doing, and, and she hasn't told us. So until she comes forward and uh, confesses to what she was doing in the laboratory and, and we see the research records, uh, we don't know exactly what she how she was manipulating this particular coronavirus. I don't think they have a vaccine for it. I think this caught them off guard as well. I hope we do develop a vaccine. But look, uh, Dr. Fauci is, 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 I'm sure, a brilliant scientist. And his very elegant solution to dealing with the China coronavirus is to isolate everybody in the United States from each other until the virus dies out, killed by our own body's immune system. And, and if you do that, if you isolate everybody in cell, little cells of fear... The virus will die out, but the cost will be too much to bear. That's obviously an elegant solution. It completely kills off the China coronavirus in the United States. But as a practical matter, it would destroy the economy and many, many lives as well. So we have to understand where the, where the Dr. Fauci's of the world are coming from in terms of the social isolation business. But it can easily go way, way too far, and I think we're, we're ready to move the needle back quite a ways. Dr. Fauci is a humanist. Dr. Mosher, from what you said, two things that I walk away with. One, China is the greatest threat in the world to the U.S., has been and will continue to be, number one. Uh, number two, this is war that we're in, and they've, they've basically dropped a bomb on us. But how do we extricate ourselves from China 
when we're dependent on those pharmaceutical drugs that are made over there right now that are saving the, or prolonging the lives of elderly? Well, you know, I think I think that we we have to be prudent because China, the Chinese Communist Party, could very easily act on its on its threat, say, to cut off pharmaceuticals. So we need to get through the the epidemic as quickly as we can. Uh, we need to. Our government needs to actively intervene, uh, as Japan has, as Larry Kudlow has recently said, to make sure that that our companies like Apple act in the national interest, and that means giving tax breaks to companies that leave China. Japan is actually paying companies, I mentioned, to leave China. Then there are the Trump tariffs, which will kick back in at the end of 2021. Remember, China has promised in January, when it knew it had an epidemic on its hands, by the way, it came and signed phase one of the trade agreement. Think about that for a minute. It promised to to buy $250 billion of American-made goods before the end of next year. They will not be able to afford to do that. And so they will default on their, their trade agreement the Trump's tariffs will kick back in. In the next year, I think the Chinese economy will suffer a kind of death by a thousand cuts. A resumption of Trump's tariffs, supply chains relocating to other countries, factories relocating to freer climates, consumers around the world rejecting Chinese products. You know, no single cut will be fatal. But taken together, I think they'll bleed China's economy dry. And hopefully they will also shake the corrupt and incompetent Chinese Communist Party to its very foundations. Again, we need a hard decoupling from China. We may want to consider, you know, moving even closer to Taiwan, extending diplomatic recognition to that country. Uh, we have the Taipei Act, which was recently signed into law, which actually mentions Taiwan as a country, as a nation, which itself is a step towards diplomatic recognition. We may want to tell China that, that they're holding $1.1 trillion in U.S. Treasury bonds that we will take, keep as a down payment on the cost to the U.S. economy and the U.S. people uh, of the Chinese virus. We should do that in concert with other countries like Great Britain, Australia, and the rest. We might want to waive China's sovereign immunity, allowing Americans damaged by the China virus to sue the Chinese government and, and confiscate its assets in the United States. I mean, all of these would be dramatic steps, but we're talking about a dramatic hit to the U.S. and the global economy. I want to come back just for a minute. You know, we've been talking about the need for ventilators, rationing, health care, the disabled, who gets treatment. My concern with all of this, and, and I truly recognize China as a communist nation, is the effect it's having on our, America's sanctity of human life. I think we're, this virus is moving us to be, be more to the rationing euthanasia than it is yeah. doing anything else. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think it's moving us in a, in a kind of utilitarian direction. That's what came out of Italy, you know, when they were suffering from very high death rates. Not, not so much because of the uh, China coronavirus, but because the, the healthcare system had been underfunded for years. And they simply didn't have enough resources to deal with the crunch of people who became ill all at the same time. But they were saying, the, the Italian Medical Association was saying that we have to reserve the ventilators for people who are otherwise young and healthy and deny them to the elderly. And I think that's a very dangerous road to go down. I think the proper response to that question of uh, how, do you, how do you use your medical resources is you do the best you can with the patient you're confronted with at the moment. You don't hold back treatment 
keeping it in reserve, thinking that someone who's younger and healthier uh, might come through the door next. Uh, that leads you down a very dangerous path that results in uh, practical kind of euthanasia. Fortunately, we haven't seen the kind of numbers that those early, really radically wrong projections uh, suggested we would be seeing that created and still create a kind of panic and anxiety in the United States. I understand where the predictions came from. I mean, they, they came from China. China was reporting a few thousand cases and hundreds of deaths, and we crunched the numbers and we thought, my goodness, you know, 6% of the people who contract the disease are dying. And so if we get a million cases, we're going to have, you know, we're going to need 60,000. We're going to have 60,000 fatalities and so on and so forth. Those numbers were all false. Those numbers were all false. The numbers coming out of Italy, I think, were also uh, unreliable because the national health system of Italy, as I say, has been defunded or underfunded for years. They had a a problem with a severe flu season in 2016, just four years ago. The same thing happened. They had a much higher rate of death from the flu uh, than they should have had because they just simply didn't have the resources that they needed to cope with the numbers that were coming in. So we really went off, I think, the deep end in our response to the China coronavirus, thanks to China and thanks to some of these these really radically overblown uh, projections. Well, you've been a wonderful guest, Stephen Moser, and I want to thank Bonnie Quirk and Mark Curran for this show. I guess we're holding our breath. I think we'll get through this one. I'm just wondering, are we ever going to have a way to deal with biological warfare soon? So if they make the next mistake that we're better prepared for it, Dr. Moser, what do you think? I think we're going to have we're going to have hundreds of thousands of ventilators in storage. We're going to ramp up our uh, defensive efforts against new bioweapons, and we're going to stop cooperating with China in terms of biotechnology. We're going to stop letting them into our labs. We're going to stop the theft of biotechnology from our companies and in all areas, for that matter. And that will, over time, reduce the risk that that comes from China. But we've got to remain on the alert. You know, this can't happen again in our lifetimes. And if people want to find out more about your work and the Population Research Institute, how would they go about doing that? Well, our website is pop.org, P-O-P dot O-R-G. Pop is short for Population Research Institute. I'm a pop, too. I have nine children. But the pop in here is for Population Research Institute, pop.org. Uh, I actually opened a Twitter account reluctantly a few months ago at Stephen W. Moser just to follow the coronavirus and uh, follow the breadcrumbs back to the laboratory in Wuhan where all this came from. God bless you, Stephen, yeah. and thank you so much. We're going into a hard this break right now. This is WSFI Spotlight. Information on this or any other program, email info at wsfiradio.org.